today I'm going to read chapter 4 of Duncan Peter. Duncan woke up next morning with a start. I'll bring your heart and laver out with your false littering tales, resounded from the sod of stone of the wall. Blinking rapidly from under his clothes, Duncan tried calling his sleep blurred mind to attention to make sense of uh, to make sense of what he heard. The vicious threat sounded as if he, it came from his mother's voice, but it sounded so unlike her manner. Yanking his plate off his plate, Duncan hid out his bone. He rubbed his eyes and looked again. His mother stood atop the plank boards of the trestle table, with broom in hand, poking viciously at the underside of the heather sack of her head. Her face was flushed red, her hair stood all disarrayed in her frenzy. A shaft of sunlight from one of the narrow windows illuminated particles of dust and stray bits of straw drifting into the table with each new one. Two one too many times I've made me made your potent prattling repeat that she she went on with another violent lunge of wonder to your handle. I'll not sit idle while you bring more of your spit infested disease and time into the world. She nearly toppled off the table with a nice jab. She suddenly she halted and looked around the interior of the class. Her gaze rested on the musket, her eyes narrowed ruthlessly. Duncan followed his, his mother. For an instant, the sight of his mother firing the musket into the rafters and the thatch split, splaying with, e- with every which way with the explosion made him nearly burst out laughing. Why would his father already outside think when he heard the musket fire and looked back to see the roof of his craft flying in every direction with the impact? Rudy looked earnestly up at Duncan's mother. He cocked his head and whined as if begging her to come down. Duncan sprang from his bunk, slinging the kilt as as he lunged toward her. Mother, you'll do yourself harm, he said, clutching at the her shirts in an effort as much to steady her to per, as to persuade to come down from the table. I intend to be doing these infernal rats a harm, not myself, she said, and eyebrow raised warily as she made the last jab and at the thatch, then took Duncan's hand and she helped her off the table. Duncan had learned that this mother, normally so tender and full of compassion, when provoked, became a lioness, unmatched for fierceness among women. Though she ordinarily reserved her wrath for defense of those she loved, Duncan often resolved to never be the cause of igniting a fire or feigning the flames of her ill fate. Has Mother Gangite asked sleepy-eyed Jenny, her impish face poking out under the folds of her chaff-filled bluster. 
Mother's not gone mad, Jenny, said Fiona softly. It's the rats again. Duncan's mother brushed her skirts and worked at composing herself just as the cottage door opened with with a groan and his father stepped into the dusty room. Duncan knows where he's been. In the weathers, Duncan's father stole from the croft each morning before anyone stirred. Curious, Duncan had arisen early one morning and followed him. His father fell to his knees under an overhanging rock where he could be sheltered from the fiercest blasts of wind and cold. Duncan climbed silently onto the rock to listen. His father's voice rose and fell with emotion as he wrestled earnestly with his heavenly father. Duncan felt the tears come hotter as he listened to his father, begging for the souls of his bearings, pleading for the progress of his kingdom of God, of the kingdom of God in the curse, asking for patience to bear up his under trials and adoring God with psalm-like expressions of love. Overflowing with the deepest and most profound confidence in both God's goodness and greatest in all ordains, his father prayed at the cross. But his father prayed, "The cross of Christ is the sweetest burden that I ever bear. It is such a burden as the wings to a board bird or sails to a ship to carry me forward from my harbor." Due to his blubbering in the heather. Duncan gave himself away that day. He knew that this morning the f- his father had been at prayer, and he was just now returning. I thought I heard the skirling of a daft loomer, said, said Duncan's father, a smile playing at the corners of his mouth as he searched his wife's eyes. It's the rats, she said, turning from her, from her husband, her cheeks flushed crimson. Rats hovering overhead go and get me dander up so they so as they'll bring me a daft, she said, touching her head. There, there, my love, said Duncan's father, folding her to himself with his strong arms. I spoke with John Kilbride about the rats. He'll he'll send us he'll send us badger traps. I'll send Duncan after and this very day, we'll tease him out of of the thatch, and with a bit of, uh, of with a bit of cheese, we'll get your rats, my love. Duncan's pulse quickened. Kilbride's farm lay down the glen near the cat near the village. As much as he wanted to get back to the castle and explore the secret passage he and Rudy had discovered, and I ran down the glen would lead to the latest news uh, on the troubles their farm situated uh, their, uh, their, their farm situated so near the village as it was, and he'd see his friend's genie. Now, Duncan, began his father, looking lovely at his son, make ye your way to the Kilbride's place as fast as your feet can carry ye. Fetch an armload of traps from John Kilbride and come direct home. 
Will, you're not going empty-handed, said Duncan's mother. They've been hard put upon late. I'll get you a sack of oats and some cheese. With a flurry of hopeskin skirts, she filled a sack with food. Can I take Rudy along? asked Duncan, trying the sack of tying the sack of food in his plate so it would ride securely on his back. If you're not taking it all day about it, replied his father, the sheep will need tending and watering when you're home. I'll be cutting some spring grass and I'll have the wee lasses give the sheep something over the wall till you're safe home. As Duncan's father readied himself for the day of work, he he paused for an instant and looked at his musket and looked at his musket in the place at the door. At the door, Duncan followed his gaze. Then his father deliberately turned and gathered up his sickle and teeth. I'll just cut some grass and wait for the sheep and be off to the store. After embracing his wife, he left. He turned to and, and she turned and stared levelly at her son. You can what you can what to do if you see any dragoons? Where is Chloe? I'm disappearing up to heaven, said in the theater, said Duncan, sounding sober. Secretly, his heart quickened at the prospect of seeing soldiers, their red uniforms and their horses, their guns and their swords. Haste you back, lad, she said grimly. After, after his mother embraced him, he stepped out uh, to, of the croft into the warmth of the sunlit morning. From the contorted branches of the skymore tree of the knoll near the croft, a thrush warbled an extra burnt good morning. With the bleeding of the sheep in his ears, he drew in a breath perfumed with the spring grass and the sweet early scent of the heather. Duncan felt like singing. Though the bank of great clouds lined the northern horizon and seemed to stand ready above the hills, for the moment the day looked bright and cheery, and he had freedom all the morning with all the excitement of a visit to the village. The swoosh swoosh of his father swinging his sickle in the tall meadow grass of the slope to the west of their home caught his attention, and he felt the twin cringe of guilt as he watched the sunlight reflecting on uh, the sunlight reflecting on the sheep perception already growing on his father's arms and face. While his father worked hard, Duncan could be would be doing what he so much loved, roaming around the glens with Rudy, roaming about under the noses of James Turner and his bliss bloodthirsty dragoons, but they wouldn't catch him. Duncan took another deep breath. A flush of excitement shone in his cheeks. We all the trouble and temptation, lad, his father called without missing a beat in his cutting. 
Sometimes Duncan felt certain his father could read his mind. I father, Duncan called back. And mind you don't stumble, his father added, his blade still falling on the grass. I'll not stumble, father, called Duncan. His words must have betrayed his hands at the mere suggestion that he might stumble, for his father replied, Stumblings of more than one kind, my lad. He stopped cutting and looked earnestly at his son. Stumblings of the heart, mind you, break more than bones. Aye, guard your heart, lad, guard your heart. You'll, ye see, can seem to keep the covenant with your hands and your feet. That's the easy part, but if not keeping the covenant with your heart, you can't be honoring King Jesus. As he spoke these last words, his father held his strong arm sore Duncan that seemed to be pleading with him. For an instant, Duncan felt water come to his eyes. One thing he knew, he never wanted to do anything to bring dishonor to his father. And no play-acting along the way, lad, his father added, looking steadily at Duncan, his sickle now posed over the tall grass. Aye, no play-acting, said Duncan, a wave of his hand. Then, tur then turning, he and Broody went, ran down the glen towards the darling. As he ran, he felt a thrill in his heart beating fearlessly in his chest. Rudy looped easily at his side, tongue lolling and ears flooding behind. Duncan loved running as he was fast. He once ran on e rand to the Darley and back up the hills to their craft in less time than it took their father to shear ten sheep. And nobody in Gall and Galloway sheared sheep as fast as their father. In moments he passed the first stage of running, there was where his muscles seemed to complain at such demands after lying idle through the night. He knew that what lay ahead was a effortlessness of, of mind and body, propelled whenever he wanted to go by a pair of very strong legs. A heavy wool fold with his kilt swooshed rhythmically against his bare legs with each stride, casting quick glance over his shoulder for one last sight of his family crop before turning into the wood, accelerated with the prospects of his few hours of freedom, he plunged down the path toward the glen. The words of the, the salter came to his mind as he ran. He makes my feet like feet of a deer. He broadened the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn. He leaped high over a branch that had fallen on the, into the path the last one. Leaving the bright sunlit sunlight behind the plunging into the murky shadows of the wood, Duncan blinked rapidly to adjust his eyes and slackened his pace. A rich green blanket of bracken and shade, clo clo shade clover surrounded the trunks of Scots pine and beech trees. 
He knew that in the dark of the forest, roots and stray branches cluttering the path would trip him if he didn't watch his steps carefully. It never happened to him, but his friend Jamie Kilbride would never run as if he used to, as if he used to after stumbling in a heap of his, this very path. He and Jamie had been racing with Duncan well out ahead when he heard muffled thudding and then a snapping sound. There came the, an agonizing scream. He sickened at the sight of the brakes in Jamie's leg and one break and splintered white bone that pierced right through the skin. Duncan shuddered with the memory and slowed his pace even further. The wood thinned and then lighting a candle in the dark room, Duncan broke out into the sunlight again. The path grew in, in, into more in, of a car track as Duncan neared the village. Dry stained dikes bordered the winding track of, of serve as fencing to keep the sheep or the belties belted Galway, or the belties belted Galloway cattle, uh, the pride of local cattlemen, to define the boundaries of the farms that surrounded the small village of Dowry. As he ran, Duncan breath breathed the smells of civilization, heat, reek, cattle, and earthly smells of plowing and pinching otters of the village where human beings lived to closer proximity to one another. A good day to ye, Thomas Macron called Duncan, waving to a grim-faced farmer at his plow. Duncan thought of new lambs as he watched the farmer's young children prancing along behind that the plowing. They occasionally halted in their frolic to pick stones and heft them at the edge of the little field. Reins looped across his shoulder, the farmer guided the stoked old horse, puffing as its head labored wearily up and down as if as it pulled the grinding and squeaking plow through through the stubborn sod. Aye, and to ye, yes, answered the farmer curtly, while keeping his eyes on the furrow and both hands on the plow. Just down, just down the car track, sounded by the lush green fields of the local farms, lay a cluster of cottages, great peak reek drifting above them as the woman of the village baked their own cakes and prepared noon me- noonday meal. Duncan felt a gnawing in his noodle. St. John's Down of Dollery was a little more than two rows of cottages clinging to the hillside, huddled close together like sheep just before a storm. At the foot of a narrow street running between the cottages, just above the steep banks of the River Kent stood uh, the parkish kirk, its spire beacon and crow step gables in, in reminder of the higher things 
in former time. It had been four years since Duncan had worshipped with his family inside those walls. In 1662, their faithful minister, Mr. McKing, Mr. McKing, had been ejected from the pulpit and thrown in prison, for all for failing to submit to King Charles II as head of the church. Now the Papist George, now the Papist George Henry conducted services in the Papish Church. Duncan never thought of him as mi- never thought of him as Mister, a little a title locals reserved as a minister, a true master of the divinity. So incompetent was the drunken cleric that Duncan had had even heard he lost track of the days of the week from time to time and conducted Sunday services on the wrong day. Now the kirk and her spire stood only as a defiant reminder of the bitter wrongs of kings and proud tyrants who made their business to oppress and plunder all within range of their power. Gather rather than violent conscience, Duncan and his family, along with the most families of the district, refused to attend papa's services inside those walls. Since passage of the parliamentary laws demanding fines of all who failed to attend the episcopal services, faithful covenanters and their families met secretly for worship in the woods and glens around Galloway. The enforcement of these laws called the bishop's dragnet by the locals, the king entrusted into the greedy hands of the monster Turner and his dragoons, garrised into the district and quartered in the local homes. Soldiers bribed the weak to inform their neighbors, and some did. The, the king's spies watched the trysting places or field meetings in hopes of breaking up the meeting and plundering the offenders for unsilenced worshiping with stuff with stiff fines or arrests. Punishments of a greater kind and the English reserved for covenanting field creatures as if confiscating their property failed to stop their preaching. Prison torture prison and torture awaited them. If those measures failed to break their loyalty to the covenant, they silenced them at the gallows. Duncan had heard what happened next. To make a public example of them, they cut off their head and hands and spitted them on the spikes on the on the city gate of Edinburgh. He shook his head violently, trying to clear his mind of the somber, somber thought. At the head of the edge of the village lay Kilbride Farm. He slowed to a walk, catching his breath as he approached the thatched farmhouse. His friend Jamie would be there. So that was chapter four. Bye guys, see you later. See ya later, see ya later, see ya. See ya later, bye guys.